0: Good podcast. My name is John Roebuck and with me is Blake Australian Curtis.
1: G'day guys.
0: And Derek not Australian Armstrong.
2: Howdy partner. Wow. Wow. partner. Crocodile. We are
0: talking about a western today of sorts aren't we?
2: We are. Yeah.
0: So howdy's appropriate. What about partner? Partner's appropriate. Okay too. good. Mm. <laughs> this episode is called, here we go, the good, the bad and the Aussie. And that's because we are talking about Warwick Thornton's film Sweet Country. Here's a synopsis that we found online. Australian Western set on the Northern Territory (laughs) frontier in the 1920s where justice itself is put on trial when an aged Aboriginal farmhand shoots a white man in self-defence and goes on the run as a posse gathers to hunt him down. Now it goes without saying that there will be spoilers for Sweet Country in this episode but if it doesn't, then let me warn you now that there will be spoilers yep. for Sweet Country in this episode. Sweet. Derek, spoil away.
2: Yeah, I thought this movie uh, kind of blew me away. Um, this is the first time we talked about a proper Australian film on the podcast. Well, as you,
0: you pointed out, we pointed it, we, we talked about Mad Max, yes. Fury
2: Road. Yes. To the extent, I mean, that's an Australian director and Australian crew in, in a lot of respects, but, but not actually filmed in Australia, right? Yeah, and yeah. yeah. But but yes, it's
0: and largely I think overseas money as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: But this is this is this is not not on a full on Australian films, but it but it struggles with the very kind of essence of the Australian persona, you know, and the Australian character. Um, and uh, it's interesting for me to watch it as an outsider because um, it's certainly not. Um, you don't have to be an Australian to understand what it means to uh, have um, a dominant culture come in and oppress a, a native population because that happened in the uh, United States as well, of course, and numerous other places around the world. Most other places, really. Most other <laughs> places around the world. So we've all been through that. It's a struggle that we all kind of uh, owe it to ourselves to grapple with. And i be damned if I didn't think Warwick Thornton did an incredible job at it. Um, there are possibly some moments that are a little bit on the heavy-handed side, but I really didn't care about that because I just thought, it was like a jolt of kind of something that really important that every Australian should see um, and any
1: citizen of the world should see, really. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. I really enjoyed this film. And I'm a big fan of his work as well, um, with Samson and Delilah obviously yeah, being his, the first film that he did. And I expected, having seen Samson and Delilah, this could be a bit hard to watch at points. So it's kind of nice. Samson
0: and Delilah is not an easy watch. No,
1: no. And it's just. Just It's really confronting and he's obviously trying to do that deliberately to raise awareness and to yeah. really push an ugly issue to make sure that we're all aware of who we are, who we were and who we currently still are. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. I do think there were heavy-handed moments or even just comments. Um, Sam Neill at the end kind of being like... What hope does our country have? I was like, oh, we don't need to say it. Like
2: you know, it's <laughs> that does stand out to me, but
1: I didn't mind it because <laughs> we don't need to
0: say it. We all know there's no hope. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, yeah. So, so we get to the end of this. We should probably give a little bit more of the story. So, yeah, as, uh, you did your synopsis, I know, but so that yeah, so this uh, Aboriginal uh, farm farmhand is that the right ranch hand? Um, has to go on the run when uh, the white neighbor, who's drunken, who has raped his wife, although he doesn't even know it at the time comes at him trying to find a boy that has escaped, which he really has nothing to do with, hmm. and he's forced to, you know, the the guy's shooting up the house, and he's forced to raise his own shotgun and, and return fire, and um, it k- kicks off this manhunt um, led by Brian Brown, and um, and ends in a trial, and um, afterward, uh, uh, the, the final act happens, and Sam Neill says in despair, "What country what hope does this country have?" And you think. It, it did strike me as, that's a line of dialogue that we possibly didn't need. But it also kind of, I kind of liked how he basically just put his thesis down um, on in, in, the, in that dialogue and said, here, I'm confronting you, viewer, like, what country, what hope do we have, what do we need to do to kind of make this a better um, environment where different types of people can coexist peacefully, um, not just the natives, that were here before the Europeans came, but the um, immigrants who have come since then, who who probably uh, have a different kind of prejudice being addressed to them. So I, I it was heavy handed in one sense, but I kind of felt like we needed it. we needed that jolt at the end.
1: Yeah, see, I don't, I, don't, I, I didn't feel that I, I needed that jolt because I kind like it, w- it was there and it was always present. And I think the other thing that was really That we kind of haven't, we should talk about is the use of flash forwards, or even sometimes they weren't flash forwards, they're kind of like little flashbacks.
0: It was an interesting way of compiling a film like this. Mm. I mean, there was, it was sort of, um, uh, there's a fragmented nature to how Thornton put the film together, and there were no really long scenes except for maybe the court scene, and there were a lot of uh, very short scenes. Mm. And I think it's a, especially considering a lot of of the um, rest of the film really reflects a sort of classicism cinematically, mm. uh, especially when it comes to the Western, and uh, this sort of fragmented flash-forward, flash-backwards and even just short scenes, you know, to convey the information was uh, pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, oh. I, I, I why was, I wasn't for most of it, for most of the time, because it, it, at times it seemed to be a memory and then at other times it seemed to be revealing a truth. Before it even happened, or I guess the even like it depends who the character was because you know I remember at one point um Sam's partner w- when you know he he was dying in her arms and she was remembering them running off together it was like this nice moment and then you had the the crazy neighbor like he him stressing out in front of the fire so it just seemed to be like he's in a dim so it was interesting how like it was cool uh, all kind of different but I didn't enjoy like I so for the most part I did enjoy it but the one that I really found quite misleading obviously which is deliberate was that the rope. Oh I like thought that the, was great though. Yeah but th- that's what I found interesting because it seemed to be like you know they had this underlying theme of like um don't take you know don't take from white fella when he's got the he stole the the pocket watch. Mm. But you know they very much invested in this religion and you have the church kind of going up it just seems slightly kind of confusing as but what the messaging that, was
2: wasn't that a purf- purposeful misdirection because if i can remember correctly we saw oh, that twice yeah yeah and you're supposed to think it's they're, a, they're somebody, hanging him. they're yeah. lynching somebody yeah and then you end up finding out they're raising a church which which i think is is, is interesting because this gets a kind of thornton's perspective on this and um, I think some reactionary people on the right might watch this film and think that it's very anti-European and very um, pro-Aboriginal, uh, but I don't necessarily think it's as uncomplicated yeah. as that. Um, Warwick Thornton is saying is kind of giving some value to the power of Christianity and to belief in a higher power that isn't necessarily related to, you know, the, uh, the Dreamtime and, and the traditional Aboriginal um, spirits – so, I mean, basically, they come forward out of a belief. They come forward, obviously, and turn themselves in.
1: Out of that belief. Um, out of
2: this belief in the Sam Neill character and the goodness that he's been trying to share to them through the Bible. And in truth, they actually have justice done um, in that, they, that they're absol- absolved of the crime course then someone cowardly shoots them that you don't even ever see who that is which i think is kind of profound you never see who it is which means it could be anybody It could be all of us yeah but um but basically they made a a decision based on following neil's teachings and it actually turned out it initially turned out okay
0: (laughs) yeah but i think long
2: run it did not but their faith was kind of rewarded so i think it's it's a it's there's a lot of different things that he's saying here and they're not all you know Black good, white bad, you know. No, like, and I think yeah. it can't
1: be that simple. And I think that's what's interesting is, it, is it's convoluted and it's all kind of attached and it's living in unison. Like all that all that kind of concept's really fascinating. But I guess it was more like because it was – I guess what I was talking about was more the idea that that was a – the idea when you see the rope is that you're meant to be thinking that they're hanging him, mm-hmm. which is understandable. And so it's like because you've put that in my head, when he gets off mm-hmm. – I never believed that he was going to get off, and so it's like because I always saw the hanging. Does that make sense? So it's always like isn't it's that like that a double disillusion. Isn't
2: that kind of a successful manipulation then, though? No,
1: it's not because uh, I guess it, it might be successful because you, I I didn't believe in the verdict and I didn't believe that this would happen. I think at that point, at the that's end, that's when I point. lost yeah. it.
0: Yeah, and I, I I think one of the reasons I didn't believe, I I, I think the sentiment behind the film is you know, spot on and I think the story is really there and I actually do like the fragmented nature of it. Uh, what I think really lets the film down is the in, in awful script. The, mm-hmm. I think the dialogue is, is really um, debilitatingly weak and that uh, feeds in, fed into the fact that I didn't believe the verdict because uh, everything, everyone just um, spoke in such a stunted way... The judge just didn't seem like a real guy. I never got to know him, so I didn't understand why uh, the the guy would be let off. Mm-hmm. Um, none of the characters really made a sense to me beyond the strength of some of the performances, particularly by um, the main fellow who played Sam, mm-hmm. um, Hamilton uh, Morris. Yeah, Hamilton Morris. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I thought uh, for what he had, Brian Brown was also given uh, uh, did a did a pretty good job. But that verdict just felt like it did come out of nowhere because I never really. Was given an opportunity to gauge where anyone was coming from, yeah. Because the dialogue was so bad, it was uh, it was either really uh, underdeveloped dialogue, or it was um, really um, uh, uh, basic sort of. Uh, like when Sam Neill says to Brian Van, "You know, you're not right in the head." It's like this is sort of the sort of dialogue I've seen in these scenes in so many films. Mm. Like, this is this is uh, amateur writing, mm. uh, which mm. was a shame because I think the the, the core. Um, uh, uh, plot of the film it was very engaging mm-hmm. and i think every development in the film was really engaging and i think the film could have had a lot to say and was really almost there um but because i could never engage in any of the characters or any of their decisions including the judge which is why the court uh, verdict didn't really resonate with me um well, i think there's and, and, and yeah. e- even even the um uh the motivations of Oh, I mean, of any of them. When, when Sam gives Brian Brown the the water, I guess it's to show that he's sort of uh, empathetic towards his dying character, mm-hmm. even though he's being hunted. But because the script was so underwritten, I never felt any of these things that the filmmakers were trying to do. Mm. I thought it was a good good film, but it really sort of uh, uh, never quite got there because mm. it was so uh, poorly written. Yeah, and
1: I agree. I think because you know, Warwick, Warwick Thornton shot this as well, and I think he's an incredibly visionary mm-hmm. Filmmaker and like a lot of the time, I I I almost got more from the characters just from points where I was seeing them visually and they didn't even say all that much. And so so when they spoke, it
0: almost took away from their characters. I thought, like you're right. You you get you get these characters established by how Warwick Thornton shoots them, and uh, and they're just sort of performances when they're not speaking. And then they're giving. I I mean, I I was thinking. the first Star Wars came to mind, you know, because it's famously poorly written, and the actors really struggled to, you know, s- convey George Lucas's dialogue mm. without feeling stupid. And when I was watching this, I, w- I was thinking the same thing: like, how do you mm. say that without, you know, sounding like it, it, it was just such characterless dialogue? Mm. And it, su- it sucked that sense of um, uh, purpose out of the film and, and character out of the character. Mm. Well,
2: maybe that's why I was so taken with those flash forwards and the the kind of little editing tricks he was doing there because they were wordless. Um, that was the thing that I liked about them. The Whatever the um, um, diegetic dialogue was during that scene, it kept on playing or whatever the sounds were and, the, and it was just the images flashing forward. And I thought that was kind of more like the pure cinema that I was, um, was kind of getting through the cinematography, through the landscapes, through these kind of iconically drawn characters. I agree, yeah. I, I think some of the dialogue. Now, I mean, you're drawing my attention to it more than it occurred to me at the time Mm, that I saw it, but um, I think those are fair criticisms. I think it's still... I think there's something to be said about the kind of uh, core impulse of the film and the kind of... the beautiful... Uh, image making and well, it, the whole myth, the myth the, it, kind of the mythology and the struggle of it. Well, that's that, when
1: I was really into it. When he, yeah. when Brian, Brian's character started, uh, the Colonel started riding out into the desert alone. Then I was like, like yeah, I at that point, those I was like, great, I'm yeah. in. And this is like, this is like walkabout. This is like a man that I don't really understand, but he needs to well, find this guy. Like, yeah,
2: his character is so interesting too because I think you proceed along the, the lines the whole time that. Oh, he's a racist. He just wants to string up any um, Aboriginal he can find who steps out of line. As you come along, and this could be a little bit of like kind of Pollyanna, also if you if you view the the court scene that way. But you kind of learn that Brian bound's character is more like he is a law abider. Um, I mean, even though he's a creep in some respects, I think you get the, you get that idea. He really kind of has this idea, he has a code that he operates by and it has nothing to do with the fact that this is an aboriginal man. It has to do with the fact that a man was murdered or shot down at least and he needs to be held accountable for that crime um, or potential crime. He can't just run off into the bush and be gone. Yeah. So I, I think his character, I found his character to be Interestingly complicated. Whether it was a little bit facile, I couldn't really tell you. I think it, I mean maybe it was a little too simple in some parts. Um, well, I think I
1: think they could have gone the other way and made it even simpler. I think it yeah. could have been this really cool stylized western and yeah. like well, go it, back to like there's spaghetti a lot of, there's western a lot, kind of days. There's
0: a lot of I think not only spaghetti westerns but a classical American mm. westerns and I think it's especially visually the film really evokes western cinema history and there's a lot of John Ford and Sergio mm-hmm. Leone. I mean, Ford is American westerns and Sergio Leone is famously Italian um, uh, spaghetti westerns, among other directors. Uh, I mean, even um, there's that famous shot in The Searchers, which looks outside from the house, from in. And uh, I think that shot was evoked a few times in, in this film. Um, but I think also, importantly, what I uh, was struck by was it had this... Um, not reverence, I wouldn't thought, but it, it is. It's certainly like stylistically and even in some ways thematically connected to a lot of old westerns, but it isn't a laboured emulation of sort of those classic westerns. It's its own film, yeah, stylistically and narratively, even while sort of calling back to those old westerns as well, mm. yeah. And I and I, I guess that's one reason why uh, it was a shame for me that the script was so bad because it really was on the right track in in so many ways. Me too. And I reckon it
1: really could open, like, uh, hopefully... uh, It's a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. I I was like, hopefully this opens a a whole new avenue for Australian filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Like, we have this beautiful outback that is just...
0: Well, yeah, the Australian Western is like a source of, like, pretty much largely untapped potential. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. like, potential for storytelling and also historical comment, which I think this film was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and I think... um, The proposition is really the only other... I was thinking the proposition, uh, uh, yeah. Australian Western that's got a lot of attention, and I really don't like that movie mm-hmm. uh, at all. But I, I thought, um, you know, this was this is a step in the right direction. Yeah. yeah, and I
2: thought I, I, what you were saying earlier, uh, Blake, with uh, Thornton being a bit of a, a visionary, I just wanted to call attention to like one particular scene that really struck me. Um, and again, it's completely wordless, so that's probably to your point. It's the scene where March comes back uh, when Sam has gone off, and Sam's wife is there inside, and the, then the other the the nef- the niece, or whoever she is, is sent off, and March goes around the house and systematically shuts every window. Yeah, that really in was the house, like- making the place completely dark. That was, a and you're scene. in the background. You're not even seeing his wife. You're just thinking, why doesn't she do something? Why doesn't she go? And she's just she can't. I mean, she has been so placed in a place of submission by the white people, mm. um, especially people like this, who he knows that she knows will possibly kill her if she doesn't do and doesn't submit. Mm. And eventually it just comes around to her and there she is. She's waiting. She says, I know, she thinks, I know what's going to happen and there's mm. nothing I can do about it. And that happens. But it's just like as each window closes, there's like a little bit of hope leaving that scene and yeah. inevitability going toward it.
1: Yeah, it's an incredible scene. And it's like, yeah. you know, they, they, those character choices, they were interesting. Like, you know, it, because right before that moment she sends the – Niece away, and the niece says, "I've already washed that blanket." And so she's kind of putting herself in the firing line before the niece. So she's making that choice. And I actually would have liked at the end of the court scene if the colonel had more of a moment of him deciding. Like, what what influenced that moment was what questioned me. Was it because he found out that Sam's wife was raped, or did he? Is it because he found out the truth? Because Sam spoke about it at the trial. He He, did okay. um, but again, like the same as, as John was saying, it seemed to be that the judge just jumped to conclusions. The court scene that was Sam really, really uh,
0: lackluster. Mm.
2: Well, you know what's funny? I, I wasn't going to say anything for a film that I liked as much as this, but I actually did see, you know, the nine thirty show. And during the court scene, I was actually nodding off a little bit. Yeah. And so I, so, the, so when you said that he he mentioned the rape in the court scene, I said, "Oh, really, did he?" Because yeah. yeah,
0: that shows so a bit of a lack of commitment.
1: I think that's one of actually, you know, I think I didn't have a big night though beforehand. You you always have a big <laughs> night before our podcast. So I've, I've never, never had a big night. <laughs> one of my yeah, my like, and I think that was a little bit of my issue with Samson and Delilah as well. As well as this is. I feel like it, it. It the pacing just needs a little, a little bit of work. Like it, it, they just yeah. need to tighten it up. Usually in the back end. And I d- was wondering whether they were just hiding some maybe some bad performances near the I, end. There, I, the
0: I actually I, I didn't mind the pacing, and I think it was really only towards the end when they returned to town and there was the court scene and the judge came in and this this dialogue really took over and it was just um, you know. Uh, it it I, I it felt like the dial dialogue written by a, a uni student like a film student who mm. yeah like, uh, did, did Warren Thornton write it himself or no no there I was don't other know. people yeah but um oh, no a couple of uni students did <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that explains it uh, find another uh, vocation <laughs> um, but I I actually didn't mind the pacing and I think yeah. those those uh, fragments the flash forwards and back they really added to... It. They, they, I think they kept the pace up.
2: That yeah. was kind of one of my favourite um, artistic choices in it. What did you guys think of the very opening shot with the, the cauldron, mm. with the different dirts being poured into it? Or yeah, whatever it well, I think
1: that was just like a... I saw that as like a metaphorical thing. It's like of, a very
2: visual, obvious metaphor. Uh, yeah. Of
1: like a melting pot of yeah. black and white being kinda mixed likes it together. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. And especially because <laughs> I liked the the dialogue that was happening yeah. behind it. Like yeah. you kind of just imagined well, it like, all coming to a boil. My point. whole
2: idea, I mean, the, the I mentioned this in my review also, that um, the film is actually has kind of um, an episodic nature to it to some degree because there are lots of different characters with different arcs. Mm. And I feel like it's kind of like a bunch of different allegories of like things that occurred... In the colonialism uh, of the the you know of any country, particularly Australia, but it could apply anywhere. With these, uh, you know, for example, um, this idea of the kind of um, reluctant relationship between um, Kennedy, the other rancher, and his son Phil- Philomax. That, that, that was his son. Yeah, that was his son. But like you don't you don't notice it for you don't know it for a while because originally he punishes him for for eating a melon or something like that, yeah. or he like steals steals something. From some food from the garden and eats it. And you think, oh, he's just trying to punish a guy who works for him. But eventually you realize this is his son, and he doesn't—he either doesn't want to acknowledge it or is reluctantly admitting to it. And his, their arc over the course of the film I thought was interesting. It may have been a little forced at certain parts, but it was basically like um, Australia coming to grips with its own history and accepting its, you know, white people accepting their role in the um, subjugation of, of the natives, you know, and like maybe even like the apology that we got, you know, 40 years ago or whatever for the stolen generations. Um, 40 years ago? It wasn't, it wasn't, it was a lot more recent than that. I
0: think so, yeah. Not even 10 <laughs> years. Either. I was
2: being optimistic, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, I, found optimistic to about me, I, I found that playing out interesting, and I actually really liked the vo- the final final shot of the film when he drops the pocket watch into the water I kind of yeah. thought that that was and that's the thing yeah. I think
0: I think every it was all there for, yeah. for I think a really amazing film yeah and I think uh, yeah the, the relationship between Kennedy and, and he's his he, something Philomac I mean? yeah, yeah Philomac cool name yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like a was pen there or and <laughs> I think you know like Sam Neil uh, you know essentially mm. as a character was there but again he was written in so so underwritten and I think so um, uh, basically written, that I, I couldn't invest in in anything, and I c- mm. it it really, it, really, well. it really dampened the impact that these uh, stories and if they were analogies or like yeah, mm-hmm. um, could have made. Yeah. Um, it was it was, was, was nearly, there. It, yeah. was nearly it was, there. it was nearly there. It was three quarters of there. Oh.
1: It just needed. They just it seemed like again with that relationship and you know some of the other character arcs, they just weren't sure how to put the yeah. final nail in the coffin and I think and it was it out. I think
0: it was a really bad script mm. um, uh,
1: that, that was well really well directed yeah. uh,
2: I wonder if I'm grading on a curve a little bit too because just kind of thinking about I think just, you're
1: being optimistic as well about the relationship for Mac had with his dad uh, I mean it's not
2: <laughs> He's I mean, he's accepting responsibility on some level. I think. And I think. I think. What I'm what I think is interesting about it is it's Thornton's attempt to inject hope into something that could be viewed as hopelessness. And he does that repeatedly throughout. And I think that that's good because you know this was released on the on the eve of Australia Day, which was rightly called by some people as Invasion Day, and um, and Thornton was clearly trying to draw attention to that, um, but. He didn't want it to just be a screed of bitterness about what white people did when they came to Australia. There's a lot of hope in the film, and there's a lot of complexity in the way that um, his message comes across, and I value that a bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with the yeah. I agree with that comment. I think that's a n- nice way of putting it. But <laughs> there's a lot of sadness in there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and I, we, I just want to give kudos as well to I don't know the actor's name, but the guy who played the the neighbor, the crazy neighbor. I thought he was. He's in. Yeah, the, I thought he's great. And it's uh, so fascinating. He's in the to watch.
0: second season of Top of the Lake. Oh. And he's awesome in that. I didn't actually like him in this, but I thought he's,
1: he's yeah. awesome in Top of the Leg. He scared me in this because yeah, yeah. I just, I just, he was so erratic. I just wasn't Kevin, sure. Was, well. It was in the first
0: season of Top of the Leg. Oh, there
1: you go. So
0: are you talking Stan about is the, the no father of Philomac or the guy who gets killed? The guy gets killed.
1: Guy gets
0: killed. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I don't know that his name. <laughs> uh, his name is oh, Ewan Leslie. Oh. Uh,
1: yep. yep. Uh, good. Uh, it's good having uh, these... Two walking, talking film encyclopedias in the time. I'm supposed to be that guy. Do
0: not call me an encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, You've been called that one too many times. You, your you're better than me, Derek. I was actually <laughs> singing your uh, uh, encyclopedic abilities praises. Well, oh, I was singing their praises, More of a party so, trick, I think. Today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, nothing that says party like real enough <reeling off> film <laughs> facts. Film oh, yeah. Uh, okay, Ladies. We're going to move <laughs> on to our top three. Yeah. Uh, Derek, do you want to explain it?
2: Sure. Um, so I was a fool, and I said, hey, let's do top three Australian films, and John said, no, there's too many. So uh, we narrowed it down to ha- uh, top three Australian historical films, which basically means did not occur, plot does not take place at the time that the film, it's not supposed to be in the present tense of when the film was made, yep. um, which, which can be interpreted however you want. I interpret it rather historically in, most, in all of my choices, I think. Um, my number three was uh, Philip Noyce's uh, Rabbit Proof Fence, from 2002, which I think, um, which I'm going to for- I'm going to forget what the period of time was because I didn't look it up again, uh, right beforehand. But, um, it's, uh, it's about it's kind of a similar situation. Um, some escaped stolen children, I believe, um, who are trying to follow uh, the, this fence back to their home. 1931, I just looked it 1931, up. back in, um, in Western Australia, I believe it is. Um, and, uh, um Kenneth Branagh plays the character who's kind of in the Brian Brown role this time but he and he is another character who truly believes um what well, he's doing the right thing um sending a tracker another uh, an aboriginal tracker after them and that's tracker and is scary yeah he's a scary that guy in that David oh yeah. yeah yeah um and the um and there's some really cool um mm-hmm. artistic choices Walker's... Ah, yeah. oh, he really yeah. did not. Yeah. Sorry,
0: sorry, care. There's right. some really
2: cool artistic choices about how you know the uh, the um, outback is uh, portrayed. I remember the you know some kind of um, trippy visuals and stuff in it. And just I just thought it was a great story and it really drew me in. Um, number two is uh, *Picnic at Hanging Rock*, uh, Peter Weir, 1975, and that of course takes place on uh, Valentine's St. Valentine's Day of 1900 when. Um, a couple schoolgirls and their one of their mistresses go missing on a hanging rock. and um, the first time I saw this film right after I met my wife about 13 years ago, I didn't love it because the I think it's fairly front loaded. there's the, the best parts are all at the start. but' I've, as I've visited Hanging Rock twice and i uh, seen it again this year, I've really fallen for it and I actually read the book this past year too as well. so hmm. big fan of that. Doesn't
0: it the book end with like these crab monsters? It does. Really? Crab monsters.
1: Yeah. Crab people. Yeah, they, crab people. What are people?
0: talking about? It? I, 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 no, oh, it no no, 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 no. Hold on. You know, I think it actually originally was going to end with crab monsters. I'm not even kidding. Uh, I'll have look to look like this up. Okay.
1: Talk like <laughs> well, people. Well, while you're crab telling me number one, people. You look it up. Crab right? people. Pe- My I number one
0: is Breaker
2: Morant. Bruce Beresford's 1980 film takes place during the Boer War. Um, when uh, it's got a lot of actually thematic similarities to Paths of Glory, um, the Kubrick film. And um, and I really, really like this one. Um, it's basically soldiers on trial for their lives uh, for um, executing prisoners, which was kind of done as a distraction for greater crimes being committed by their superiors. Mm. And something about this film just really, really drew me in and it blew me away. And um, has a unfortunately very similar outcome to Paths of Glory as
0: well, and, but it just really grabs you. So those are my choices. Very good. Just quickly, there was originally 18 chapters in Picnic at Hanging Rock. The yeah. publishers made it cut it down to 17. They took out the last one, and I'll read this now. This is what happens in the last one. The girls follow a snake that descends into a strange hole. Miss McGraw magically transforms herself into a small half crab, half lizard oh thing God. and disappears down the hole after the snake. Marion does the same. You know what's funny? They're actually Looks making like
1: I crab. believe they're
2: making a new mini series. I yeah, wonder if they'll put already that in. Made it, yeah.
0: They've already made it. Get the crab stuff in. All right,
1: Blakey. Um, uh, number three is The Dish. Um, which is a great film about um, set just before the moon landing. Um, Rob Sitch, is that right? I think, yep. yep. And it's very about... Uh, it's his party trick. Yeah. <laughs> it's about a dish out. I'm uh, not sure which part of Australia it is, but essentially it helped with televising the moon landing and they had some technical difficulties beforehand. And it's great. They play cricket on it. They've got Sam Neill. It's got Putty from um, Seinfeld in it. Hey, you can't go wrong. It's all good. <laughs> Number two is Gallipoli. Um, yeah, Gallipoli is... Awesome! It's just uh, one of the best. That uh, that last shot of the film always sticks with me. Uh, and number one is a film that I all I often think about. I really love trippy films like this. Is Walkabout. Walkabout was even though at the time it was tough to watch. It's um it's really quite a fascinating film. Watching these these three kids go out into the bush and 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 just yeah just I don't know have to deal with parts of themselves and it's one of the hardest. Um, deaths I've ever had to deal with, I think, in a film. It's really. Don't quite spoil hard it, I haven't watch. seen it, no.
2: Mm. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but you can spoil it. Ah, no, <laughs> I won't, I will not.
1: I'll save it for you because it's a great film, but it's that. a very trippy, very trippy film. Is that Nicholas Rogue? Um, yes, I think so. Yeah. Now they're just showing off. <laughs> uh,
0: and my number three. I've cheated and I've got two for number three, sorry. Okay. Uh, I also uh, <laughs> have Breaker Morant and yeah. the other one, equal Third, is the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith. No. Uh, number know. two is Picnic at Hanging Rock and number one is Glibly so. I love how you never talk about your choices at all ah. <laughs> I spend like 45
2: seconds to yeah, two you minutes use up all my time crapping yeah. on yeah. about mine and, <laughs>
0: yeah they, if, you, if they really want to know it go and watch it yeah you that's know? right yeah, um, right. yeah. You know what I'm saying yeah,
2: yeah I do know what you're saying
0: uh, Blakey <laughs> final thoughts on Sweet Country
1: uh, enjoyed it not enough crab people
0: more crab people in Australian so cinema everywhere. Cinema. Just yeah.
1: generally, the crab people deserve a right. I think Australian historical
0: dramas, I think, is really where they need to be put first, yeah. and then crab you can sort of yeah. ex- expand beyond that. That's right. If uh, if it succeeds, yeah,
1: which yeah. it will. Which has to. Yeah.
2: One other heavy-handed uh, thing in there that I, that worked for me also that I wanted to get in there was the the viewing of the the film about Ned Kelly, Kelly um, and, and how. Kelly Yang. And how Brian Brown tears down the screen during it I don't know I thought it was interesting it was another one of those
1: well, that was a nice scene as well when they're yeah. alone in the bar together and they're talking about moving away and having a family yeah like it's, it's interesting like side like side material
2: world. about these characters mm-hmm. that just kind of kind of gave them a little bit more dimension which I know didn't work as well for you guys with the writing but, but yeah I liked that scene you know, for kind of the same reason I like some of the other scenes where the me- the message was kind of obvious, but I, I enjoyed the way it was presented. But I feel like it was yeah.
1: a very strong visual message, yeah. you yeah. know?
2: Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's it. <laughs> no final comments for you. I can't think of anything. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, that dialogue was better used. than the whole yeah. film, <laughs> what Jozza <laughs> was just doing. It was yeah. good. Uh, you know, we're smart people. <laughs> Thank you, Derek.
1: You're very welcome.
0: And thank you, Blakey. We'll be back again at some point. I think next uh, next episode we'll have Zoe.
2: Yeah.
0: Because Derek's dad is coming to visit. I might be stepping
2: out for a bit. My dad will not let me do podcasts while he's visiting.
0: Yeah, there's a strict no podcast rule. And there always right. has been. That's since uh, right. Derek's father and his father before him and his father before him. It's a sort of weird. I think there were time machines involved as family well. Family tradition that, yeah. mm-hmm. amongst the Armstrongs. And, you know, if I know Derek's dad, which I don't, He's, uh, you know, Neo. cracking the, crack, cracking the whip. It's true. Thanks, guys. Uh, for more film stuff, go to realgood.com.au. That's uh, real with two e's. And we have the Real Good Film Festival coming up. If yeah. you're interested, it's on March 24th, uh, Saturday, March 24th, at the Schoolhouse Studios in Collingwood, Melbourne. Yeah. And it is probably the best film festival. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Full stop? Yeah. Uh,
1: Apart from Crab Fest. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, guys. Crab
2: Fest 2018. (laughs)